0: This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Thank you, Diva. She does a great job, doesn't she? I think maybe Diva should just preach. That'd be awesome, wouldn't it? Yeah. Uh, Hey, a couple of things. Uh, My name is Ron, as Diva said. For those of you Who are brand new. Um, I'm the pastor of our church. Uh, I also happen to be the founding pastor of our church. So that means I'm old as dirt. That's what that means. So uh, welcome to church and we're going to have a great time together. Those of you online, thank you for tuning in. And I pray that this service is meaningful to you and more than just something that you watch, but something you can actually feel drawn into. I would like to say a couple of things before we get started. First of all, at the end of my teaching, I'm going to take us straight into a time of communion. So if you didn't get one of these little communion kits on the way in uh, and you would like to take communion, it's always optional at our church. But if you would like to take it and you didn't get a kit, there are baskets on on the tables in the back. Please make your way there now so that when we get ready to go into communion. You'll be prepared. I want to say one other thing about the Christmas Day service. Uh, I realize that every time we announce a church service, that there are some of us who feel this complete obligation to be there. And that could come across to you like, what? You're invading my Christmas Day now with my family. I, I want to speak to that. Okay, We have no intentions to invade anybody's family Christmas traditions, okay? But there are a number of us that would like to be reminded on Christmas Day of what the original Christmas story really was. And so we put it at 2 o'clock in the afternoon so that you could get up and open presents and do breakfast, brunch, whatever you want to do with your family. If you're going to do Christmas dinner later in the evening... Um, we are going to do a super simple service. I don't think we're going to have any live worship at all. But if you've at all been connected or seen some of The Chosen, how many of you have seen episodes of The Chosen? A lot of you, right? Well, you might not realize the first episode that that group ever put together is an, epo- is an episode called The Shepherd. And it literally is the story of the birth of Jesus. So we're going to watch that together. And if you want to be part of that, come. If not, that's okay too. I don't care if we have 30 people here or 300. I really don't care. It will be a wonderful time on Christmas Day for us to tune back into that original Christmas message. uh, message. Everybody okay with that? That sound good? Okay. Uh, Now... It is the beginning of the Christmas season, and it's sights and sounds and cookies and food and family and football and just all this stuff kind of all wrapped together. And uh, in many ways, it's good. And in some ways, it's a little hectic, right? But in many ways, it's good. And it tends to bring out the best in us, I think. But one of my favorite Christmas stories reminds me of one of the weaknesses that we probably all have. And it was a cartoon, and it showed a guy sitting at the table with his little Advent calendar, and he's got this funny look on his face because it's like three days after Thanksgiving. He says, hmm, according to my chocolate Advent calendar, Christmas is in three days. Guess who's been nipping at the calendar, right? Yeah, we do have that thing in us that during the Christmas season we like to indulge, right? That's not actually bad. Can be, but it's not actually bad. Because in some ways we are realizing that Christmas is a story. It's a historical event that God knew would bring out the color and the beauty and the feelings and the emotions that he put within all of us. And that's good, right? That's awesome. So my prayer for all of us is that this Christmas season that God would be able to touch every part of who we are. Are you on board with that? Yeah, let's do that together. So, Today, well, we have this series that's three teachings long, and it is Christmas. It's more than just a nice story. And I want us to dig into. So today we're going to dig into the subject of the historicity of Jesus. Does that sound sophisticated? That's my big word for the week the historicity of Jesus. And we're going to actually look at, do we have any real historical evidence to lead us to believe that there was an actual person, Jesus of Nazareth, who lived and walked on earth? And then we're going to look at, so what's the big deal? And we're going to see how the stakes are super high and what that looks like next week. Uh, Bill Funk is going to be here, and he's going to lead us into, in this thing. Christmas, it's more than just a nice story because it actually changed the entire world. Yes. And he's going to look at what the pre-Jesus world was like and what the post-Jesus world is like. And we're so familiar with the post-Jesus world that there's a lot we take for granted that we assume was there before Jesus came, but it wasn't. And that'll be really interesting. And then the following week, if Angela can get her passport, you could pray about that. It's hung up in New Hampshire right now. But if Angela can get her passport and come, Angela Lamb, one of our favorite staff members ever... Is going to be back with us, and she is going to be teaching on the Christmas. It's more than just a nice story because it actually changed eternity. Mm-hmm. Big deal, huh? Yeah. yeah, this I think it'll be a great Christmas season. So today, oh, by the way, if Angela doesn't make it, you're stuck with me. So there you go. <laughs> that's how that's going to work. Uh, so you could pray pray doubly hard that Angela gets here. Um, Today, let's talk about the historicity of Jesus. The idea that was Jesus an actual historical figure. And there's a couple of of questions on our screen that would be good to just kind of take us into this subject. Is Jesus a really big deal because he was part of the Christmas story? Or is the Christmas story a really big deal because it was part of the life of Jesus? Because if Jesus is a big deal only because he's part of the Christmas story, like, is Elsa a really big deal because she's part of Frozen? Yeah, probably. Yeah. But I don't think Frozen is a really big deal because it was part of the life of Elsa. Because it really is just a nice story. But the reason we celebrate Christmas today is because it was actually part of the life of Jesus. But that leads us to another really important question and that is, can we be certain that the Jesus of the Christmas story was an actual historical figure? And that actually leads to another question that you won't see on the screen, but I want you to think about it for just a minute. And that is, what does your faith rest on? That's a super important question. Let's talk about some epic instances of misplaced faith. Do you know where the phrase don't drink the Kool-Aid comes from? an epic story of misplaced faith that started right here in the Bay Area with a guy by the name of Jim Jones who created this cult following, took them all to Guyana, and when things went south, he convinced them all to drink cyanide-laced Kool-Aid, and they all died together. Now, they believed but their faith was based on the personality of a charismatic guy. There's some evidence in history that the first president of our country, George Washington, died from loss of blood, not in battle, not from a wound. But because the medical profession believed in those days that the diseases of the body were carried in the blood, so if you got sick, you could go get some blood let out and therefore be less sick. And there were bloodletting stations. And you might not know this, but outside of old-fashioned barber shops, there's that red and white pole. Did you know the red on that stood for that was a bloodletting station? where you could go leak some blood. And there's some evidence in history that our first president actually died from loss of blood because they kept bleeding him because he was sick. Now, now I could tell you stories all morning about misplaced faith. So what does your faith rest on? Is that good enough? I sure hope it works. That's not good enough for me. <laughs> no, if if I'm going to build my life on something, I would like to know that my faith actually matches reality. Does that, does that work for everybody? That what I'm believing is actually true. Not just because somebody says so. Every once in a while, someone will say to me, Pastor, I don't know why you get all hung up on this historicity of Jesus and you go through all this stuff. You know, if it was good enough for my parents and good enough for my grandparents and my great-grandparents, it's good enough for me. Well, their faith rests on a family tradition. That might work for them, but that doesn't work for me. Because I happen to know That my father and my grandfather and my great-grandfather and my mother and my grandmother and my great-grandmother were not perfect. I know that. You know why? Because I met them. Yeah, they're like all the other people of the world. I'm not going to build my faith on just something they believed. So in order to really press into this, I think it's important that you and I understand the nature of faith. How is faith supposed to work? And fortunately, God gives us a very clear lesson about that. Take a look at the screen. Here's how God says, faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence for things we cannot see. I want you to see that God connects faith and reality, and he connects faith and reality with evidence. So let's just suppose that we were going to go to court about something, and there's been a horrible crime committed, and of course, the courtroom scene is basically to answer one question, who did it? Now, there are numbers of kinds of evidence that the judge, the jury, and every lawyer is going to look for. And the absolute highest level of of evidence is an eyewitness. Somebody who was actually there who saw it happen and who can describe in vivid detail what took place. That sort of evidence tends to trump every other kind. The level of evidence right below that is the evidence of an eyewitness who actually saw it and wrote it down but is no longer living. So now let's talk about the historicity of Jesus. Unless you know someone who's 2,000 years old, you're not likely to find a living eyewitness. Got it? They're not going to be there. But that begs a question. Are there any eyewitnesses who left a written record of Jesus? And if there were, did they leave any documentation? So let's start there. Because that's where every court would start. And we're going to read a couple of examples of people who were eyewitnesses and they left detailed accounts of what they saw. And here's the first one on the screen. It's written by John who who lived and walked with Jesus for three and a half years straight. Let's get something else clear about an eyewitness If an eyewitness stands up and says, well, you know, it was a little dark and and dingy that day and I saw this shadowy figure coming, I'm pretty sure it's that guy. Well, have you ever seen this guy before? Well, no, I, I didn't really have a whole lot of contact with him, but I'm pretty sure it was him. Well, that eyewitness account's pretty shaky. But if the eyewitness can say, oh, I know it was him. It happened in broad daylight. I can tell you by his walk, I was with that guy for three and a half years straight at work. I've seen him walk over and over and over again. And oh, by the way, I recognize the coat he had on because he used to wear that coat at work all the time. Now you have an eyewitness that's pretty much rock solid. Let's understand something about John. When John writes about Jesus, it's not that he had an encounter with Jesus one day and he's not for sure whether it was in a dream or a vision or it was real. John is a guy who lived with Jesus three and a half straight years, 24-7. You think he knew him? Yeah. Here's what John says. We proclaim to you the one who existed From the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. The one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have what? Seen him. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard. So today, suppose you were to interview Steph Curry and you were to say to Steph Curry, hey, dude, I have some real questions about whether a guy by the name of Steve Kerr actually exists. Could you shed any light on that subject? What chance do you have of convincing Steph Kerr, Steph Curry that Steve Kerr doesn't exist? Zero, right? Because that's his coach. He's been with that coach for years. You couldn't convince, no matter what you did, you couldn't convince Stephen Curry that Steve Kerr doesn't exist because that's his coach. You try to convince John that Jesus didn't live. Here we go. You have to be kidding me. I saw him. I touched him. I heard him. I walked with him. I ate with him. I laughed with him. I cried with him. You questioned if he lived? (laughs) I got no questions. Let's take a second eyewitness. His name was Peter. Peter. Same kind of thing. He walked and talked with Jesus for three and a half years. Peter says, we're not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when he received honor and glory from God the Father. Now, Peter is referring to uh, an event that took place in the life and ministry of Jesus, where Jesus took Peter, James, and John. They went up onto a mountain, and Jesus for uh, a few moments, received his heavenly body, not his earthly one. And it freaked them out. Can you imagine somebody that you know, somebody that you know regularly and are with regularly, and you're with them, and all of a sudden, they get this body that you can tell is an eternal body spiritual body, as as Matthew would write about it and as the other apostles, they would say his clothing became whiter than any bleach could ever make it. And he got this glory, this radiance. It was literally the glory of Jesus in eternity. And they were like, whoa. (laughs) Now, Peter is writing about this. And he says, we saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice from the majestic glory of God. While they're looking at Jesus and going, whoa, the heavens opened and the voice of God thundered. Would that maybe get your attention? Yeah, like crazy, right? And the voice of God says, This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. And Peter ends up by saying we ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Do we have eyewitnesses to Jesus who left a written documentation Oh, I just read you two. There are a lot more than that, okay? But that begs a question, and the question is this. Do we have only one or two eyewitnesses? If so, in court, if you had two eyewitnesses and they told the exact same story and they gave the exact same information and they were talking about two different places in time, but it was obviously the same person, the jury would go, we're convinced, We have two people who are telling the exact same story and they didn't corroborate. They actually told it independently. But more would be desirable if we could get them. Fortunately, there are tons. If you know anything about the story of Jesus, you know that a central portion of the story of Jesus Is the resurrection. And the prediction he made. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. The Jews and the Romans are going to collude. To kill me. They're going to crucify me. They're going to put me in a grave. And three days later. I'm coming out of the grave. I'm going to resurrect myself. And oh by the way. If I can resurrect myself. It's my guarantee to you. That I can resurrect you. And I will. Big part of the story. So then that brings up a question. Do we have any eyewitnesses to Jesus after he was resurrected? Or maybe Jesus was real, but the story of the resurrection is a sort of fabrication of folklore. Well, fortunately, We have records of that, too. When Paul was on trial for his life before King Agrippa and the new governor of Judea, Festus, Festus and Agrippa called Paul in because Paul had been accused of something that could have been a capital crime, but he was quite innocent. He was there really because of his faith. So when he's on trial before Festus and King Agrippa, notice what Paul says, honorable Festus. Because Festus wonders, man, Paul, you're crazy. You're sitting here wasting away in prison because you believe some guy raised himself from the dead. Can't you find something better to do with your life than that? That sounds kind of stupid. And Paul is wanting Festus to realize you don't understand what's at stake. The salvation of the entire human race is at stake. I'm not crazy. What I'm saying is true. You know what he's saying? My faith is based in reality. He goes on to say, and it actually makes sense. None of these things happened off in a corner somewhere. Paul is saying, Festus, I know you're new to Judea, but open your ears, man. This is common knowledge. Everybody knows this. He goes on to say, I'm sure that King Agrippa, who was a longtime king of, of Judea and Israel and, and who knew the story of Jesus well, he said, I, I'm sure that King Agrippa knows what I'm talking about. And that's why I can speak so plainly to him. Which begs an interesting question. And here it is. How many people claim to be eyewitnesses to Jesus after he was raised from the dead? Now, I want you to think about this. I did a little research, and the population of the city of Jerusalem during Jesus' day was about 80,000 people, or just a little larger than Petaluma, but not nearly as big as Santa Rosa. So think of Pataluma, all right? Paul writes later and he begins to recount the people who actually saw Jesus after he was raised. And here's how Paul writes about it. Jesus was seen by Peter, then by the 12. After that, he was seen by more than... 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive today. Paul is writing a couple of decades after Jesus died, so a few of them had died. He goes on to say, though some have died, then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles and last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. I want you to think for a minute. that That's 500 plus eyewitnesses. If something happened in the city of Petaluma and someone was raised from the dead and more than 500 people in our town saw them, would that make big news in Petaluma? Think that might make the Argus Courier? Yeah, that would make the world tonight news because that stuff doesn't happen. And if, you know, if CBS, NBC, ABC, if they showed up and they started interviewing people, and sir, have you actually, yes, I did. Ma'am, have you seen? And there were 500 people and person after person after person is saying, yep, I saw it. Yes, I saw it. Yes, I actually touched him. Yes, I actually visited with him. Yes, I actually sat down and ate with him. After he was killed, you saw him crucified? Yeah, I did. You saw them put him in the grave, dead? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I did. And then you saw him afterwards? Yeah. Massive eyewitnesses. So when you wonder, what does your faith rest on? Let's at least begin with an understanding that it rests on the account of hundreds of eyewitnesses who actually have left a written record. But that brings up another question. And here it is. I, I know. The Bible claims that Jesus was an actual historical figure, but are there any historical references to him other than in the Bible or from Jesus' followers? Now, we're going to look at this, and there's some great answers to that question, but I want to start with an understanding. Okay. Sort of the, the the reasoning behind that question is, if the only testimony you have are people who were personally connected with Jesus or became his followers, I wonder how impartial they would be. That's a fair question. But I think we have to apply that same thing to other questions. So let's just suppose you're trying to determine, is Abraham Lincoln a real historical figure Or is he sort of a folklore person that was invented by Americans who got sort of uh, excited about their democracy and they created a larger-than-life hero? Said, okay, we're going to go in and we're going to look. And you start digging through historical records and then someone says, oh, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Because Americans might be prejudiced I think we should discount all the records that anybody American ever recorded about Abraham Lincoln and we're only going to look at records of people who are not Americans. Do you think that would be fair? No. You would be discounting the people who would have the most reason to believe in him. And I think it's unfair when critics discount Everything that literally thousands of Christians have written about in their own personal experiences with Jesus. But for a moment, let's just discount all of those. And let's say, are there any references outside of Christian history? Here's the truth. Multiple Roman and, his, and, his, and Jewish historians referred to Jesus like they did everybody else. None ever suggested that he wasn't an actual person, okay? And I'm going to give us a number. Archaeology is great. Up to this point, we have uncovered a number of Jewish historians' writings, okay? To no big surprise, because the Jews hated Jesus. He's often not mentioned because they would just as soon forget him. But there are three that we have discovered so far who make an actual direct reference to Jesus of Nazareth. And here they are, Josephus. And take a look at when he started writing. 37 AD. You know when Jesus died? 33 AD. Josephus is not going on hearsay. He starts writing four years after Jesus died. And Josephus has multiple references to Jesus of Nazareth in his Jewish historical annals. And he doesn't refer to him as a made-up figure, a legend, a fairy tale. No, Josephus says, there was this guy, Jesus of Nazareth. Just like he writes about everybody else. You can find the same thing in the Talmud and the Tulladot, Yeshu. Uh, which which basically became the Jewish Bible and official historical records. They have multiple references to Jesus of Nazareth as an actual historical person, someone who lived in Israel at the time that Jesus lived. So those are Jewish historians. Surprisingly, uh, I think maybe for most of us, There are many more references to Jesus in Roman history than there are in Jewish history. And that doesn't make any sense unless you remember that the Jews hated Jesus and therefore tried to write him out of their history. The Romans had no reason to hate Jesus, so they didn't write him out. They wrote him in. Okay? And I'm going to list eight of them up here. I'm not going to walk you through all of them. I do have one funny comment to make. However, you can see on the top of the right column, Pliny the Younger. And some of you thought that was only a beer from the Russian River Brewery. (laughs) Okay. Actually, they borrowed his name from history. He was a Roman historian. Okay. But I want you to look. Look at Thallus, 52 A.D., less than 20 years after Jesus died, Thallus is writing about this Jesus of Nazareth as an important figure in Jewish history, even though he's a Roman. Pliny the Younger in 61 A.D., Suetonius in 69, uh, here's Tacitus in 56. I mean, these people are writing history that they know about Because literally, it took place either during their lifetime or just before. It would be like someone today writing about the Vietnam War, only it's closer than that. It would be like someone today writing about Desert Storm, something that just took place a few years ago. And really, it's actually even closer than that. So, pretty interesting stuff. And the more that archaeologists uncover the more likely they are to find more and more references to Jesus by these Jewish historians or Roman historians because Jesus was an actual figure. Now let's take a look at Christian references. Depending upon how you consider a historical reference to Jesus as a real person, the Christian references number how how many? More than 20,000. Is that enough witnesses? That's pretty amazing, isn't it? In my research, one of the things I uncovered is that skeptics will often say, well, we have statues of Julius Caesar and statues of Augustus Caesar, and we have statues of all these famous people of Pharaohs in Egypt and so forth, but there are no statues of Jesus. I wonder if he really existed, because we don't have anything like that in history. Well, number one, Christians were not into making statues of their gods because God said, "What? you shall not make any graven images, right? They recognized that was not appropriate. But let's take that a little different direction. There's only been one person ever in the history of the world who was personally connected with a cross who was that jesus right do we find any crosses as we dig through historical artifacts they are everywhere and in a way that's a direct reference to jesus even though it's not a statue of his face that makes sense to you they're everywhere Here's another historical fact. In the ancient world, there was never any debate about whether Jesus was a historical figure. You cannot find that discussed anywhere in history. That's only been something that people in the last few decades have ever dared to even suggest as a possibility because everyone in the ancient world knew he was real. As we close, I want to walk us through this question. So why is the historicity of Jesus such a big deal? So what if it's a made-up story? What difference does it make? I want to tell you at least five reasons why it's a big deal. Okay? Reason number one is on the screen. Because it means that God came to earth as a human being. If this is a story, then God didn't do that. Now, a few years ago, Many of us got enamored with A Little Mermaid in a Disney flick. I believe Disney did it. The Little Mermaid. And in that movie, she sings this beautiful song in which she says, I want to be part of that world. She has become aware of this world of creatures on land. And she has a friend, a scuttle, right? That she loves dearly. And there's something inside the little mermaid that she realizes that if you love people in that world, you want to go be part of their world. Long before the little mermaid sang that song, the God who created you and me looked at our world that he had created and he said, I want to be part of that world. I want to live with them. To walk as they walk. And when you cut me, I want to bleed like they bleed. Because I want to feel everything they feel. That's why the Christmas story is so important. Because it means that God actually came to our world. We sang a song, God with us. Emmanuel. Reason number two. Because if Christmas is real, then Calvary and Easter can be real too. If there is no Christmas, there's no Calvary and there's no Easter. Everybody get that? If Jesus didn't get a real body, if he didn't come to earth as a human being, if he wasn't born, as the Bible says, he was born then he has no way to die, no way to pay the penalty for our sins, and no guarantee that you and I could be resurrected because it was all just a clever story. That's why it's a big deal. And oh, by the way, that's one of the major reasons that skeptics today want to attack this story because they don't want to believe in Calvary or Easter either. So if you can kill Christmas... You get all three in one shot. Let's go to reason number three. Because it has huge implications about what is truly right and wrong in this world. Can we just pause for a minute? That's one of the biggest issues in our world today. And if you go to school, if you go to any public school, any government-sponsored school, you will be regularly taught that the democracy decides what's right and wrong. I fully agree. The democracy can decide within the country what they are going to consider right or wrong, but they don't actually get to determine what's right or wrong. Because the real issue is, does God determine that for everybody? Or do we get to make things right? We want to be right. And do we get to make things wrong? We want to be wrong. Now the Bible's really clear. You and I don't get to decide what's right or wrong. That has been decided by the God who made us. And when people want to doubt that Jesus was a real person, Then they get to dismiss everything he taught if he wasn't real. And guess who that leaves in charge? Us. Yeah. That's the real reason there's a debate on this issue. Reason number four. Because it means that each of us is personally accountable for what we believe and do. I hear it all the time. People in our culture believe in the universe, but they don't actually believe in God. Do you hear that? Don't say that. Don't send that out in the universe. Because the universe might hear that and that's going to come back and bite you. Why do we find it easier to believe in the universe than in God? Because... The universe is this squishy idea that you can kind of invent the universe you want to live in. But you can't mess with God. You can't squish him. You know what I mean? You can't form him as you want him to be. And if Jesus is who he said he was, and if he really lived then you and I have an understanding that we have a personal accountability to the God who made us. Not an austere, angry, frustrated God who can't wait to beat the snot out of us, but a loving Father who wants to set us right with Himself. And when we choose to reject Him, there are actual consequences for that rejection. Reason number five, this is where the story gets so beautiful, because it means that forgiveness and eternal life is now available to everybody. Isn't that beautiful? Because Jesus came, and because Jesus said, I am the Savior of the world, and I will give my life for you, and I will pay the penalty for your sins And I will send my spirit to live in you. And I will transform your life by my spirit. And when you die, I will take you to be with me forever. Because Jesus actually came and it actually happened. Friends, it means that can actually happen too. And that is why we gather here every Sunday, isn't it? To celebrate that truth. That forgiveness of sin is now available to every one of us. And I know David said some things this morning. I agree with every one of them. You are here this morning and God doesn't care what you've done. Not that it doesn't make any difference to him. Because wrong is, it still brings pain to the heart of God. But there's forgiveness for the wrong that you've done. And you say, Oh, but if God only knew all the wrong I did and God would say, I got more grace than you got wrong, right? No matter how big your pile of wrong is, my pile of grace is way bigger and repentance and forgiveness of sin and salvation and eternal life is available to all of us. As someone has appropriately said in a scripture we referenced a lot in our former teaching series, where Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it to the full. Well, here's a very simple way that someone has said that. No Jesus, no life. But if you know Jesus, you can actually know life. So well said. I want to close with a verse that Peter writes. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. That's faith, isn't it? You're believing in something you can't see, but you have a lot of evidence to believe in it. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled, look at this, with an inexpressible and glorious joy. That's life. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We're going to go go into a period of communion right now, which is the celebration of the salvation of our souls. And earlier, we sang a song, Emmanuel, God with us. And one of the phrases in that song is he's living in us. And one of the reasons that we had the communion kits uh, distributed to you on the way in today is I wanted it to be a symbol for us. Sometimes we ask you to go to the tables to take communion. But for today, we're going to take communion right where we are because we're also going to celebrate the fact we don't have to go anywhere to find God. He's living in us. He's right here, right where you are sitting right now. God is living in you. And you can have your own personal celebration that Jesus died for you and that he has covered and paid for every sin you've ever committed, and that he waits at the end of your life to receive you into his home, where you will live with him forever, and between now and then, he will walk with you every day. Lord Jesus, We're going to eat this bread and drink this cup in your honor. And we are here at the beginning of this Christmas season with such deep gratitude that you left heaven and you came to our earth and you said, I want to be part of that world. And you were and are. And while you were here, you gave your life for us. So we eat and drink in your honor. As this song says, Silent night, holy night. What a beautiful night, the night you were born. Would you take us there in our minds right now as we take communion? Amen.